Well, we've been talking about here about making, our mission is this. It's loving God with all that we are while making more and better followers of Christ. And while we've been talking about how to become a better follower of God, I want to briefly, I want you to listen fast because uh, you just need to. Um, because this first part is, I believe, premium. Uh, it's this, it's loving God with all that you are. What does that mean? And I believe that Jesus teaches us what that means. Now, a lot of times people think loving God, they kind of have this pseudo loving God. It means, well, I feel something about God. Maybe it's a fear or even a reverence. And we think that must mean that I love God. No, there could be someone uh, that you're afraid of, or they could be the president of the United States or whoever it is. And you could think, well, I've got a fear or reverence, but that doesn't mean that you love them. Uh, maybe serving a lot of people think, I, I do good things. I try to help people. That's loving God. Well, you could be an atheist and serve. You could be an agnostic. That doesn't mean that you're loving God when you do that. Religious acts. I come and I participate at church. I do the confession and I receive communion. I do all of these things. But does that mean that you really love God? No. Uh, You could be a monkey and do those things, okay? So that doesn't mean just because you do those acts that you love God. We love God because he is the divine creator. He is the God of the universe. He is the God who made us and he is worthy to be loved. Not only that, he provided Jesus. Jesus came and lived upon this earth and lived the life that you and I should have lived and died the death that we should have died. And he has provided salvation. We ought to give love and worship to him for that. And also, that he has committed to us, that he is in covenant. We baptized three people this last service, and it was a picture of the covenant commitment between God and them, that God has covenanted to be our God and for us to be his people. You know, uh, a a lot of times we uh, get confused and we kind of start to think that uh, the things that I do are loving God or that I go to church, that means that I love God. But what does scripture teach us about that? Now, I want to just for a second, I want to give you a a little short geography lesson and understand the culture of what's going on, culturally and geographical, what's going on. I want you to understand that for just a moment. Uh, Because here's, and I know sometimes some of you don't like this because you've written and told me, Uh, but I think it's important, uh, for those of you who don't mind education, I think it's important that you understand this, okay? So, with that said... Let me give you an example that we can all relate to. So let's pretend like the Metroplex, the DFW Metroplex, is the greater Jerusalem area, okay? It's kind of where uh, the money is being made. It's where the (coughs) market, excuse me, it's where the markets are. It's where a lot of the education is, where a lot of the culture is happening. And so uh, it's a, a more fluent area. And so it's the greater Jerusalem area. They have lots of access to great teaching, great preaching, great philosophy, great thoughts, great schools. And it's considered to kind of be, just picture the DFW area is kind of the greater Jerusalem area. Well, if you go a little for, for further north, then you get to the border of Oklahoma, right? Past Gainesville, and you get into Thackerville, and you get into this area. And it's much more rural and remote. And a lot of people have come there to work in the casinos. And some people look at them and just think, you've destroyed the neighborhood. And all these people have come in. And 
And, and boy, there's a lot of sinners up there. And some people have that mindset. Well, that's Samaria. That's the way they felt about Samaria because a lot of people had come in from different re- religious beliefs and they had intermarried there. And so they just, they kind of looked down on Samaria. They felt like that was not a God-honoring place. And matter of fact, you should avoid Samaria at all costs. And then you go on up north and you get to Muskogee, Oklahoma. This would be the Galilean area. This is the area of Galilee. And while they didn't look down, far as down on it as Samaria, they still thought, boy, they're just Okies from Muskogee. Those guys up there, they don't know what's going on. They're kind of ignorant. They're not as cultured as we are. They don't have as much as we are. They just don't get it. That's kind of Nazareth. Nazareth would have kind of been Muskogee to them. And so you've got that picture. And so there's a deep prejudice, certainly, towards Samaria, but even toward the Galileans. It was kind of, kind of be the way when, you know, I went to New York last summer and they find out you're from Texas. Oh, you're from Texas. They could tell by the way that you talk. I didn't even, I wasn't even born and raised in Texas. Uh, but, you know, there's just that automatic, well, you know, you don't know as much and you southern people, you know, that whole mentality, okay? So that's what's going on, but it's going on in culture, religion, and politics, the whole deal. So you've got those three areas. Jesus is from Muskogee. All of those who are offended because you're over Oklahoma and you think I'm using that, at least you get Jesus. All right, Jesus is from Muskogee. All right, so Jesus has come from Muskogee and he's come down here to the Metroplex and they're just thinking, who is this ignorant hick who's talking to us? He certainly can't know. And he's, you know, we've seen these guys come down before because 25 years before him, there was a guy called Judas the Galilean and he was a militant zealot. And he came down with a, with a load of men and he, with a bunch of rebels, and he cleansed the temple. He got rid of all the Gentiles and all the pagans in the temple. He killed them and, and just moved them out. He told the people, don't pay that tax to the Roman government anymore. Matter of fact, if you do, there are going to be consequences for me. And I'm ushering in a new kingdom. As a matter of fact, God will be our king. And, of course, he was killed and his followers were executed. And that was the end of Judas the Galilean. So this is kind of their reference form. They're, they're thinking, this guy, Jesus, he's probably just like them. And so they're trying to trap him and get rid of him. And so if you go back and you read the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, and chapter 11 and 12, you would see all the different ways they were trying to trick Jesus. Um, you know, they come to him and, and they tell him, uh, first of all, he had just cleansed the temple. We're reading this text. He's cleansed the temple. He's come in. He's been talking about his kingdom. I'm ushering in a new kingdom. He's cleansed the temple. And now they're thinking, we're going to get you. We're going to get you because where do you stand on the tax? Because remember Judas, the Galilean, and certainly the Romans do. And we're going to get you, Oki. Okay, Mr. Muskogee, we're about to get you. And so they come up to him. They say, Jesus, this is a politically hot question, by the way, at this time. They say, Jesus, let me ask you something. Um, Should we pay the tribute tax to Caesar or not? And they're thinking, this is a foolproof plan. Who should we pay? Should we pay this tax? And on that coin, by the way, this was literally Caesar's own money that he had had minted from his silver. And it's probably Tiberius. It said on there... Uh, it said on there, Caesar, Tiberius, Caesar meaning king, and he was son of Augustus, which Augustus had said he was divine. So son of God is what it said, literally king, son of God, and high priest of the Roman religion. That's what it said on the coin. He said, give me a coin. He didn't have one. He said, give me a coin. Give me a denarii. And, and he looked at it and he goes, whose image is on this coin? And they said, it's Caesar's. He said, Give to Caesar 
what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God. Pay your taxes, your allegiance goes to me. Your life belongs to me. Pay your taxes to the man, to the government. It's one of the institutions God set up. But you belong to me. They're mesmerized. And, they're, and we, we failed on every attempt. And now comes this last question. What will the Oki say about this? Because there's a huge debate going on about what is the greatest commandment? Yeah, we know what the typical greatest commandment was. But when we look at all these laws, and there's 613 laws that the Jews had identified. They were listing them in heavy these are the heavy laws. These are the lighter laws. But what are the big ones? What are the big ones we need to, to observe? And some Jews thought the Sabbath, the really conservative fundamentalist ones, uh, particularly of the Pharisees, the Sabbath. You've got to keep the Sabbath. And they were pretty legalistic about that. And then those who were a little bit more on the moderate side would say, you know, we think it's loving your neighbor. And then there were laws all in between. There were lots of debates and discussions going on about this. But let's go to our text with that background in Luke chapter 10, beginning with the 25th verse. And here's Jesus being challenged for the last time. And what, what occurs here? Well, the Bible says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So we know why he's come. He's a lawyer. He's a scribe. He's well studied. He's an expert in the law. And the Bible says, teacher, what shall I do to internal to inherit eternal life. Well, right off there, he says, what am I going to do? What do I do? How do I earn it? How do I get there? What do I do personally? And this is the antithesis of the gospel. It's the way people still think, hey, I'm going to serve. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to do good things, and God will have to accept me. What is the thing that I have to do to get over the hump? And that's man-made religion. But God is offering another way. But he says, what should I do to eternal life? And he said to them, well, what's written in your law? You're asking questions about the law. What, what's written in your law? And this, uh, this scribe, this lawyer, answers him with the Shema. This is the, uh, great, the greatest expression, the greatest prayer, the greatest commandment, if you want to call it, that's given in all scriptures. It's found in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O hear, Israel, the Lord God is one. You're the only one. And then he says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all of your strength. So that's what he tells them. You, they would have learned that. They learned this when they're about two years. As soon as you can talk, if you're a devout Jew, you're teaching this creed. That's what the Shema is a creed. You're teaching them this creed, just like we did a creed earlier. Um, kind of our rendition, the old Roman creed. It's the oldest creed found on record. Yes, there are other creeds I know. I always tell people, say, why do you leave out lines? Why are you leaving out stuff? We just take, we're taking the oldest one. There were a lot of things that have been added over the last. 2,000 years, we're just taking the oldest one that we can find in its original form. So that's why we use. So please, uh, you don't have to let me know. But anyway, um, with that said, this is the creed Jesus would have learned. This is the creed every good Jewish boy would have learned. Uh, they would have started learning this when, when, as soon as they could talk. Every good devout Jew would say this prayer, would recite this creed when they got up and before they went to bed at night. But it became like Almost the gospel is to us, oh yeah, that, yeah, that. But now what's the great law? It's almost like that was taken for granted. Maybe sometimes we just state the creed and we don't recognize the importance of it. But he said, certainly the great creed, certainly the, the Shema, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And again, if you go back and read Mark 12, it helps you a little more. And um, he says, yes, I, I recognize that. And what I would say is the Shema and then love your neighbor. So he's of the more moderate camp. And Jesus says to him what here? 
Jesus says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Do it perfectly if that's what you're going to depend on and you will live. In Mark chapter 12, he says, you are not far from the kingdom. What does he mean you're not far? You've moved. You've taken a step toward me of understanding me. If you're really seeking to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, it's going to reveal itself. I'm going to be revealed to you. The Spirit of God will come upon you if you're really seeking me. And so he's telling them this. And then Jesus throws this caveat in, in verse 28. And he said to them, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. But the Pharisee or the lawyer says, desiring to justify himself to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Another big debate amongst the religious order of that day. Is my neighbor the next guy next door? The guy on my street? The guy that's culturally the same as I am? The people in my community? Um, maybe greater Jerusalem, but not Samaritan. Nobody thought the Samaritans were. They're not my neighbors. At the Okies, I, I don't even think they are. But certainly not the Samaritans. Probably not. Most of us would say, Jesus, we don't believe that the Oklahoman people are part of it, okay? We don't believe that, but some might have, but nobody thought the Samaritans. And what does Jesus do? He goes and he starts the parable of the Good Samaritan. So he totally takes this request. So what do I have to do? What is the minimum requirement I have to do to get into eternal life, Jesus? What do I have to do? And he goes, first of all, Don't skip over the gospel. Don't skip over our essential creed of the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Really do that. And if you would really do that, then this would make sense. Because the next natural step will be to love your neighbor. And who's your neighbor? It's anybody you have the opportunity to influence, impact, or minister to. It's any time that God puts the need before you, anybody that has the need, that's your neighbor. Good night. How can I do that? That's how I earn it? No. Jesus goes on to explain the gospel. He goes on to live out the gospel. But he helps us understand what's really important and what's always been really important is loving God which leads us to understand the gospel and see the gospel. So what can we glean from this today? What can we learn from this today? Well, many people have what I call a geek squad uh, opinion of God. You know, uh, occasionally I've gone to the geek squad. If I don't have any friends that can fix my computer or whatever my problem is, I'm I'm not really tech savvy. I'm just functional technology guy, okay, and so sometimes something happens, there's a virus or whatever, and nobody else to fix it, you're going to need to take that to the geek squad. So I take it over to the geek squad, I don't know where these people are from or where, where they learn this stuff, but they've got geek written on it, so I think if you're a geek, you know technology, and so I, that's the one thing I know, you would not take on that label unless you really knew technology, so it says geek squad, so I give it to them, I come back and get it, they fixed it, and I take it home. And they are there to take care of my severe technology needs. That's their purpose, okay? Some of us treat God like that. You are there to take care of my severe needs. And when I am done, I will go back and live my life and forget the geek God. I mean, that's the way we look at him. We, we say, you're the geek God just when I need you, when I need something. This constant, I'm, I'm not daily in, in, in relationship with a geek squad. That's the way many of us approach God, like he's the geek squad God. But Jesus says, I want you to love everybody. I want you to love God, excuse me, with all your heart, all your soul, 
and with all of your mind. Heart. What is the heart? Or cardia is the, the Greek word. And it's literally this. It's the throne of your inner life. And it's the place, uh, the motivation, the conviction. What are your convictions? What are your most deeply held values? What is your greatest conviction in life? And that will penetrate the rest of your life. Your heart. Do you love God with your heart? Is your conviction what God has stated in his word? Would you say, above all else, I want to honor God? That's loving God with your heart. The next is with your soul. And the Greek word we have right there, pasue, uh, is actually also uh, the word we get psychology. It's your feelings. It's your emotions. It's your attitudes, the attitudes. It's what breathes out of your heart. It's what people know you by. That People don't always know exactly what's in your heart, but they know what your attitude is. They know how you come across. They know what you, they see your emotions. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to love God with all of your heart. And then I want you to manifest it. I want you to demonstrate it with your soul, with your feelings, with your attitudes. And then to love God with your mind, your mind. Dianoia is the work there for your mind. It's your intellect. What are you feeding your mind? Are you loving God with your mind? A lot of people love God emotionally. I come to church. I can sing songs. I can do whatever I want. I can pray. But my mind, and then we just forget about him. Oh, maybe we read a line or two of a devotional. Maybe we read a verse every day. But do we take time to study, to show ourselves approved that workmen that need not be ashamed, that understand the truth? Are you feeding your mind the word of God and are you building your faith? Are you seeking to increase your knowledge and understanding of God and who he is and who he is to relate to you? And then fourthly, with our strength. What is our strength? I'll tell you what your strength is. It's certainly in your talents and your abilities, but it's opportunities that God gives you. Any opportunities that God has given you is your strength. Are you loving him with the talent, the ability, the opportunities, the wealth, whatever it is you have? That's your strength. So Jesus said you are to love God with your heart and your convictions. You are to love him with your spirit, your attitudes, and your emotion. You are to love him with your mind. Don't be a one-dimensional Christian, but love him with your mind, and love him with your opportunities, your giftedness, your abilities. That's what it looks like to love God with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, and with our strength, and it will manifest itself in four ways. One, through the gospel. When we really love God, then we'll love people and we'll have a heart for the gospel with people who don't know Christ, with people who are far away from God. And we want them to understand the gospel, that we're all sinners in in desperate need of forgiveness. And Jesus has prided away through his sacrifice to forgive our sins and for us to come into relationship with God. The gospel will become important to you. And you'll see people who have need and you'll want to pray for them. So that's a picture that we're loving God well when we have a heart for the gospel. Secondly, we, have, we know we have a love for God and it manifests itself through trust. Lord, I trust you. I put my faith in you. I have a friend that I just visited with yesterday who just became a believer. And he's in a situation with someone that is very, very difficult, and he's having to make some hard decisions. And now that he's a Christian, he wants to handle it correctly, 
Otherwise, he would have done some things to just exact revenge and do some things that probably wouldn't have been God-honoring. But now he's struggling through this, and he's having to struggle through that. And he's having to trust God. I'm going to do everything I honestly and ethically can, but God, I'm going to trust you with the rest. That's a picture of faith. That's a picture of trust. Then worship. Worship, when we come to worship, when you have your own worship time, that becomes a part of your life. You start to see your life as worship, worth for God, glory to God, giving him praise, giving him honor. It's not something we endure. It's not something we just do on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. It's a life that we live. It's certainly music, but it's much more than that. It's giving God the worth and the praise and the value that he so richly deserves. And then last of all, it manifests itself through suffering. What do you mean when you say suffering? How do we love God through our suffering? Can I tell you this? I've hear, I hear a lot of people do testimonies, and I love to hear good testimonies. But you know the ones that really resonate with me the most, the ones that really speak to me, are the ones where people are suffering, yet they're trusting God. It's like Job. Though you slay me, your Lord, yet will I trust you, Lord. I trust you. That's a picture right there that's, Hard for the world to deny when they see someone suffering, yet my love is strong, yet I stay the course. Lord, I love you. I worship when I don't feel it. I worship when it hurts. I trust you when it hurts. I believe in the power of the gospel when I don't understand it and I don't see how it works. So I ask you this morning, are you loving God with your heart, with your soul, with your mind? And with your strength and opportunities? Are you seeing your love for God manifested through your trust for him? Through the gospel? Through worship? Through suffering? Suppose there was a a guy, a boy and a girl that met each other. and They went out a few times and the boy shared with her and said, You know, I, um, I got a trust fund coming. One day, my parents are going to give me a trust fund. And when I turn 35, I'm going to inherit millions and millions of dollars. And we're pretty going to be pretty well set. And he trusted enough to tell her that. And pretty soon he asked her to marry him and they decided to get married. And then the day before the wedding, he finds out his parents have decided to do something different. They're going to give it all to charity. They've taken on a new mindset and they felt like, you know what, you're doing okay and we don't want to. Uh, we don't want to be a stumbling block, so we've chosen. We're going to take your inheritance, and we're going to give it away to charity. And the boy accepts it. He tells his to-be wife this, and a couple hours later she comes. She said, you know, I just don't feel comfortable proceeding with this wedding. I, I don't know. I, I think I need more time. I don't know. Maybe this is right. And she backs out. What would that guy feel and think? He would feel and think that she was just marrying me for the money, for what I could do for her, for what she could get. That's a great picture for us to remember when we, become, we come before the God of the universe, when we come into relationship with Christ. It's not just about what we're going to get in eternity. It's not just about what we're going to get here because what's most amazing and what God wants us most richly to desire is Him. God, I want you. I commit my life to you. I want to be in relationship with you. And Lord, I want you to reform my convictions. I want you to reform my heart, which will reform my spirit and my mind 
And I want you to use everything that you've put at my disposal for your goodness and for your kingdom. That's a picture of loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. We're loving God with all that we are. Do you love him like that today? Let's pray. Father, I pray for each person in this room this, this morning, God. I know this is a struggle for me and for all of us. It's so easy to be distracted and, Lord, to just get into our own groove and our own uh, desires and wants. And, Lord, I pray that this morning that you would still our hearts and help us, uh, Lord, to look at the areas that maybe we're weak in loving you. Maybe for some of us, we need to just say, God, I have been the ruler of my heart, and I'm kicking myself off, and I'm putting you on the throne. Lord, I establish my convictions will be established by your word, by your principles. And God, I want that to be the foundation of my heart, my relationship with you, Jesus Christ. Lord, I want you to reconstruct my attitudes, my feelings, my emotions. God, as you change my heart, Lord, help me to adjust my attitude to bring you more glory. And Lord, uh, some of us maybe have not, don't study and we don't, Try to grow in our intellect and in our mind, understanding Christ and understanding the gospel and how to share it and how to make it known. God, I pray that you would convict us of that. And Lord, for each of us, Lord, the strength that you've given us, the opportunities that you've given us, I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to love you with those, with those gifts, with those opportunities, with those blessings. Help us to love you with our heart, with our soul, with our mind and with all of our strength and opportunities. May you be glorified. Lord, if there's one that doesn't know you at all today, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your spirit to know you as the God of the universe, the Savior of the world. Lord, I pray that they would recognize, Lord, I am a sinner. I can't be good enough. I'm like that lawyer asking, what laws do I have to follow? What do I have to do to earn it? And they would come to the place where they say, Jesus, I realize you lived the life that I should have lived. You're, you're perfect and holy. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life, oh God. I need you, Jesus. Lord, we commit our lives to you. We commit this time to you. Draw us now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.